The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Culture clash, plain and simple. How do you think you are talking to me like that? I resent the fact that your implication that only you are a Canadian. All right, my friends, it's time for the culture clash. Tuesday mornings at this time, we drill down on these things that impact our culture, and of course, uh, that's what the exercise is all about today. Joining us again in the studio, the Reverend Joe Boot, senior pastor at the Westminster Chapel in Toronto. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, John. Good morning, Just- Justin. Justin Trache, spokesperson for the Canadian Secular Alliance. Good morning to both of you. And to you. And uh, gentlemen, I wanted to start with something that, you know, a phrase that sort of befuddled me, and I'm not entirely sure uh, what it means, but maybe you can help me because it's bandied about quite readily. And uh, in terms of a provincial election upcoming, you've seen people, you know, who are uh, very strident and uh, taken to, you know, the streets and protesting for an increase in the minimum wage. We had that debate yesterday at around this time with our own uh, business analyst and uh, an advocate from the uh, Workers' Coalition talking about needing to raise a minimum wage. It's been raised $11 as of Sunday to 11 Now uh, they're talking about 14 being more realistic to lift people out of poverty. The minimum wage is one consideration, and uh, when you've got... Uh, Statistics Canada showing that the average industrial wage went up 3.1% from March of 2012 to uh, 2013, which is about $48,480. The average industrial wage contrasted against the total compensation for chief executives in Canada, the CEOs making 11% more year over year, uh, to an average of about $5.6 million or 115 times the average industrial wage. These are some of the sore points uh, for progressives, if you can call them that, or people, you know, with more of a socialistic bent. Uh, So when they use the term social justice, wanting redistribution and such, Justin, let me start with you. I mean, is there something there? I mean, is it gaining traction uh, in the public discourse? uh, And is it justifiable to talk about these things in terms of social justice? Well, to me, social justice means basic fairness and some idea of equality of opportunity for individuals, regardless of um, their their station in life and uh, the circumstances in which they're born. And I think that to give people the same basic opportunities, we need to make sure that they're granted access to post-secondary education, that they have the technological tools that's becoming increasingly important, access to to communication tools, access, of course, to the internet. If we can provide for those basic needs, then people have uh, some ability to, to, to compete and to attain uh, uh, higher higher offices and, and good, high-paying jobs. But, but to me, this isn't just a social justice matter. This is also an economic matter. When you have uh, lower levels of income and economic inequality, you have more trust between strangers, you have better social cohesion, you actually study show, you have a drop in crime. Societies function better when inequality is is minimized, not done away with completely. That that takes away certain incentives, and I think that, that that's a bad thing. But in general, we, we do want to see uh, a reining in of the exorbitant kinds of inequalities that have come to predominate in certain uh, Western nations. So, in other words, it's a moral issue. 
I think it's a combination of a moral and an economic issue. And I think that the, the interests of the rich, no less than the poor, are well served by ensuring that everybody has enough basic uh, uh, funds that they can afford to contribute to society. Well, I think uh, from, a, from a Christian perspective, the laborer is worthy of his hire. I mean, this is a, a central biblical principle that there should be uh, equity. At the same time, you know, Jesus even told a parable about the manager who uh, was hiring workers at different periods of the day, and he agreed to pay them all one denarii, to use the New Testament term, and uh, rejected claims that the the master was unjust because they agreed to each worker agreed to work that portion of the day. Some worked all day, some half the day, some a small portion of the day. They got paid the same. It's up to the employer at that point. Now, I think that uh, social justice, John, really has become a byword. It's, it's, It's a way of smuggling in Marxist concepts about the social order sounds good and nobody wants to be against justice so when people are asked you for social justice of course people want to say well yes i'm for justice the question is what does it mean this worldview divides up the world into the oppressed and the oppressor and it's uh, it's really class warfare and i would dispute that uh, societies that have tried to equalize things have been more peaceful how that doesn't really wash when you think about commun- former communist europe the Soviet Union, uh, and so on, when we look at how communistic societies have actually operated, hasn't produced peace and, uh, and equality. The fact is that scarcity of, jo- of, of CEO positions <laughs> means that there's never going to be an equal outcomes. And the problem that we see, I agree with Justin to an extent, that we should be striving to try and provide through uh, education. This has certainly been a Christian vision of society that people have opportunity to better themselves. So we have a meritocracy. But what people are demanding increasingly today is equal outcomes. They want equal outcomes, not just equal uh, opportunities to have uh, access to education. This can't be provided. In, in It's simply an, an impossible utopian myth. Well, and this is the difference. I think, Joe, you've made some really good points. This is the difference between what I'm advocating for in terms of uh, the Western nations that I think have done it right. And if we look at what's happening in Europe, the countries that do have uh, lower levels of of, so, of uh, economic inequality, um, countries particularly in the, in the in northern Scandinavia nations of Europe, have done a better job of weathering the, the recession uh, uh, there in, in Europe. But we should differentiate that with countries, Marxist, communist countries, where there is an attempt to enforce equality of outcome where we've seen the, the damages that that can do. So my first point was about the basic uh, provision of resources, yeah, education, uh, technological tools, those things that make sure that everybody has the same or at least some semblance of equality in terms of uh, uh, where they start so that they can sure, then compete and, and see where, where they can go. But, uh, you know, the technological tools, though, cost money, mm-hmm. right? So who is paying for everybody to have equal access to the... And by I assume you mean computers and the Internet and all of those kinds of things. I think, again, the question is who's paying for these things? And when we make the state the vehicle of funding all of these things, you've already got redistributive uh, action taking place. I mean, t- if you take the United Kingdom, for example, at this point... There's a 40% inheritance tax rate. Now, this is socialism. It's Fabian socialism. We, we've used a different term. We talk about progressivism and social justice. But, but if we've the already result got socialistic is that, policies. But if the result is that the reduced uh, uh, economic inequality results in less crime, results in less 
uh, uh, less need for for policing forces. But it hasn't I mean, reduced, all of these things cost money. But it hasn't reduced economic inequality. Intervention, statist interventionism in the United Kingdom. You've got more billionaires living in London today than anywhere else in the world, because these kinds of policies do not uh, produce uh, a. a, 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 a lessening of the gap between mm-hmm. the very rich and the very poor. Opportunity and uh, business and companies and people having some of these restrictions taken off them is what produces prosperity. Well, here's the other thing that I can add to the equation, you know, because people are citing in this provincial election, for example, if uh, one of the candidates who shall remain uh, Tim Hudak uh, says, you know, <laughs> he's going to cut back on uh, various, you know, in the social services or uh, in the public sector, that's being couched as also uh, retrograde or a social injustice, even to the point where, you know, the OPP association, the Provincial Police Association, somehow is drawing a line in the sand and saying, this is outrageous, we can't go across this, there's going to be like uh, women and children will be left to fend for themselves in the mean streets of Pickle Lake, Ontario, and so on. Uh, I mean, is that argument valid in any way, shape, or form that a cutback in certain social services or the public sector somehow rendering a social injustice. No, what's happened, John, is we've become so accustomed to this cradle-to-grave security provided by the state that is going to be paid for through tax dollars that don't even yet exist, is that people talk about austerity as soon as you talk about balancing the books. Well, you know, in in anybody's home, if you're cutting back on cable TV or your second car or whatever because you're, you're over budget... It's not austerity measures, it's, it's a prudence and, and, and it's a way of actually going, actually heading toward prosperity, getting out of debt is one of the first things any financial advisor will tell you about building your own personal prosperity. And so it's the gravy train mentality, I think, in the public sector when the government becomes so big that it's the major employer in the country, that's when we have a problem and, and uh, people get used to all of these vast benefits. It can't be sustained. Yeah, I, I do think that the public sector is ballooned to such an extent that, that, that cutting it back, dwindling it back a little bit, I think what they're talking about is going back to like 2009 levels or so. It's not, it's not, it's not a terrible idea. I just think that it should be done a little bit more carefully you know there are certain areas where there is more way certain areas where we really can't afford to cut and this is just taking a, a sledgehammer and not doing a very precise job of that well let's ask the question here i wanted to open it up because these are some of the defining questions uh for our culture and it is the culture clash after all but uh, as in the lead up to the election and the debate tonight you know people clamoring for an increase in the minimum wage even though it's just been increased to eleven dollars 14 is what some at Advocates and activists are suggesting the gross disparity in CEO compensation versus the average industrial wage is also calling for greater redistributionism. And people, when they bandy about the term social justice, are saying, you know, cutting back social services doesn't lead to social justice, greater social injustice. All these factors weighing into the equation of uh, do you believe that uh, we must strive to bring about greater social justice through economic means. Uh, let's find out what you say. We've uh, heard Justin Trache weighing in along with the Reverend Joe Booth. This is a culture clash, plain and simple. All right, we're back into it with the Reverend Joe Boot and Justin Trache. And uh, the first order of business is discussing this concept of social justice. And is it a legitimate goal? to which we should, as a, a culture or a society, aspire to. What does it exactly mean? Let's get Larry in here in St. Catharines. It means about uh, the minimum wage argument, raising the minimum wage, lifting people out of poverty, uh, redistributing uh, wealth, curbing CEO pay excesses, and uh, you know, allowing more of that to filter through to the working man. Is that social justice to you, Larry? 
Uh, well, it, on the surface, it sounds like a really nice idea. But, um, you know, Mr. Trache, I believe it was, that said something about, um, you know, when you have uh, the, a lesser uh, space between the, the low income and the high income, and then you reduce crime and things like that. But what, what he's not taking into consideration, maybe, is that, you know, beside, outside of the, the government uh, and the public service, which doesn't pay, you know, minimum wage, um, the largest group of employers is, are the are the small businesses. Small That's businesses right. cannot afford that jump from $11 to $14 unless you want to see one out of every four workers in small business lose their jobs because the reality is everybody believes they can get 25% more work out of their employees. So they're not going to hire extra. They're going to drop, drop one in favor of paying everybody else the $14. So you're going to have unemployment, you're going to have higher crime, you're going to have higher drain on society anyway. This is just not... Just, this is just not what studies show actually happen. What happens is if people have incentives to take higher paying jobs, they're less likely to uh, uh, be on welfare. They're less likely to, new, to need food stamps, that sort of thing. Um, it's, it serves as an incentives for, uh, uh, for using staff more efficiently and effectively if they're having to be paid more. So when you actually look at the analysis, uh, countries that have increased the minimum wage actually don't just have better social cohesion, less crime, all of the things that I that I suggested, which is an international monetary fund series of studies. I don't think the IMF is is a socialist organization that's going to necessarily want to find those results. They were compelled to find those results by their studies. But in ter- but also looking just at how it affects business, which is the point of, of, of uh, the caller's message there, it actually has incentives to boost business for employees and employers. All right, you wanted to respond, I mean, because Justin's argument is better social outcomes by raising the minimum wage, redistributive uh, policies. Uh, Joe, you say? Well, I haven't seen the IMF study, so I'm not going to uh, argue about that. But I I would say that uh, the caller is making the very valid point that if you've got seven or eight employees in a small business and you're forced to, to lift the minimum wage and the money isn't there... Uh, because it's not viable, then the minimum wage will go up for six people and two people will lose their job. That's the point. And so the the question about wage fixing always becomes, well, at what point, when we talk about justice, who sets what justice looks like? This is, in the end, becomes about coercion. And uh, it's the same with capping, um, in the end, CEO pay. In the end, they are accountable to the stockholders, and increasingly, they're tying CEO compensation to uh, performance with, with respect to stock options. Now, you know, I'm not to, If you want to be a CEO, apply for the job. I don't want the job. I don't care how many millions they get. I don't want the pressure. I don't want that kind of job. So uh, there is an accountability. There's supposed to be accountability built into the shareholders. As soon as we start saying we're going to fix this and we're going to fix that, we're going to enforce this and enforce that, you've ceased to be a liberal democracy. All right, but, but actually, it's not, it's not just sim- so simple as that. It's not just that if you increase the minimum wage, therefore uh, there'll be less people that can be that can uh, that uh, employers can afford to hire, and, and unemployment is going to go up. In fact, what typically happens is if you're not paid very well at one job, you have to work multiple jobs, which means that you have fewer people working more jobs, not more people working fewer hours, which is what you really want. Well, your argument in a nutshell, Justin, is that we affect better social outcomes if we have this social justice ideal. Uh, which runs through the minimum wage mm-hmm. and CEO salaries and uh, perhaps even the public sector uh, where we don't scale it back to the extent that some are promoting, you believe, better social outcomes. 
Well, if that I were do, the case, to be, go, go sorry, ahead, Justin. Okay. I was just thinking, if that were the case, why do we endlessly have to deal with teachers on these fat, pa- fat pay packages, uh, striking and, and uh, all all of the the government jobs are well paid jobs, they're well supported jobs. They're, they're, there's there's good retirement packages, and yet there is perpetual discontent. Well, there's a sense of entitlement. I mean, when, <laughs> you, ha- when you ha- well, I'll grant you that, of course. When you have it well, you know, you want it even better. I'm not going to defend uh, all the acts of of the teachers unions or other unions, but I'm also not going to offend. You, you uh, defend, rather, uh, John mentioned earlier, uh, 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 Hudak's proposal, which would, in fact, reduce the number of teachers. I mean, I don't think in terms of my basic understanding of social justice, the equal chance to succeed, it requires all, of, all youngsters to have, you know, good teachers, good, high-quality education. And I don't think that that particular plan is a socially just plan because it would reduce the number of, of teachers in schools right well, now. Do you think all-day kindergarten is uh, an issue of, say, uh, a better social outcome and therefore social justice? You know, I don't know if we can afford that. If we could afford that, I, I would, I would, I would certainly think that it is part of the package because we do have parents, very often both of whom work, and and um, uh, children uh, uh, do require that, uh, not just that supervision, but also that that extra educational boost at, at the youngest possible age. I'm in favor of that, but right now. Uh, you know, I think the Drummond report some years ago suggested that that was just something we couldn't afford right now, and we do have to take that seriously, no, we too. we certainly have to be sympathetic to the fact that, you know, because of the cost of living today, you know, very often mum and dad are both being uh, forced out to work. But there yeah. are multiple forces that have brought that about. And one of the things is that, of course, uh, with inflation and with the cost of everything going so dramatically sky high, uh, because of uh, welfare, welfare economies and welfare uh, governments that are, uh, tend to be we're replacing the family instead of empowering the family, they want to be the, uh, the substitute family, you, these all-day all uh, daycare proposals. They don't want mums uh, caring for children in the home. That's seen as patriarchal. It's seen as, you know, uh, it's not a reflection of social justice. But the reason that our grandparents could have one wage earner was because they, we didn't have the same degree of welfare-laden, debt-ridden uh, welfare economies that we're now dealing with in, in, in the West. Since Darwin, basically, what was said was, Darwin argued, and we've been taught it in our schools, the world is conflict of interest. It's nature red in tooth and claw. Marx came along and said, yes, that's why... I think Hobbes, said, I think Hobbes why, said something about that, too, that's why, some years before, well, he, before but, Darwin. But, but, but Darwin, Darwin pushed this point that there, no, is, a basic, there is a basic conflict... push any political point, there is, a, oh, it, there is a basic conflict of interest. Karl Marx At said that... At the biological wait a minute, level. Just let me finish the point. Sure. Marx's answer was, exactly, we have to enforce equalization because society is an essential conflict of interest. Christianity says, no, there is a basic harmony of interest in the family between church and state, between mum and dad, between parent and children. And actually, socially, if we worked in terms of a doctrine of a harmony of interest, not class warfare, we wouldn't have the issues we're facing. Well, you're right. There's no sense of class warfare in the Bible. In fact, the whole idea of of income inequality or economic inequality w- was hardly of any concern to Jesus. He had really no problem if these inequalities ballooned out of proportion. Well, what do you mean? Well, hang on. Well, we're, we're, we're straying. I know what you're saying, <laughs> but I mean, isn't that rendering under Caesar? Let me get Mike's mm-hmm. call in here. Mike, what do you say? Good morning. Social justice. Is it an important ideal to try to promote? Well, promote, yes. Force, no. Um, uh, I got to take exception when people begin using the Bible to uh, to argue their their financial concepts, uh, because, you know, if you read what happened to Ananias and his wife because they failed to, they held back part of their money, the Holy Spirit killed them. (laughs) 
So, and I, the, the statement uh, from each according to his ability and to each according to his need, which was Marx, right? Mm. Okay, that was first said by the people. It was the first thing they said when the Holy Spirit came to them. That's from the Acts of the Apostles. Now, so I don't like it when people start to say this, because I'm not a Marxist. I believe in liberal democracy. And, uh, like, not a, actually conservative, but uh, I believe in liberal democracy. I think there's nothing wrong with, with altering the minimum wage. And employers can whine all they want. The next guy down the road has got to do the same thing. So they're all competing on the same level. All right, so you're saying all boats rise with a tide, except it might have some deleterious effects. How about CEO compensation? Would you cap that, too? Well, I'm an investor. That's what I do. And uh, I don't know that I would cap it, but I certainly would get out of things where I, I all right, I used to be, uh, I used to hold Dollarama. It's a good paying stock. But you know what the problem is? The workers make too little, the CEO makes too much. All right, so you're an ethical investor. That's right. All right, I appreciate your call. By the way, uh, speaking of, you know, uh, having some kind of a duty to, uh, I don't know, a moral obligation, here Canada just uh, recently completed this uh, summit up in, uh, well, it was in Toronto, the Maternal Newborn and Child Health Summit, and Stephen Harper uh, has earmarked $3.5 billion over the next five years for uh, maternal care in the developing world. But it doesn't include funding abortion or slash family planning, which has been flagged by some, including Hillary Clinton, uh, Ban Ki-moon, uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, and uh, people who are saying you can't delink the two. It's got to involve some kind of family planning if we're looking after maternal health care in the developing world. Two questions. Joe Boot, first of all, uh, $3.5 billion when there is much need and want at home, are we duty-bound? Is that a moral obligation to uh, other people on the planet far, far away? And the idea that uh, Stephen Harper has chosen not to pour that money into anything that uh, would be akin to family planning and abortions, is he right or wrong in that? Well, I think he's absolutely right to um, not fund the the murder of unborn children with Canadian tax dollars. Um, you know, 60% of Canadians uh, already want an abortion law of some kind in this country. So the idea that but we But they say think, it should be at least a safe environment for women who would choose to do that in the developing world. Exactly. Therefore, we shouldn't yeah, turn a blind but, eye to that. Yeah, that, but, that but that argument just uh, doesn't wash. The idea of, you know, safe environments. We've got safe environments in the UK where, in fact, gendercide is taking place in abortion clinics and doctors are pre-signing wadfuls of... Uh, 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 documents that sign off on abortions without even meeting with the woman concerned. So th- this just a totally fallacious well, argument. Any, any system about... can be abused, but the fact well, is that just, one, of, one in... of the key Millennium Development Goals was to save the, the lives of, uh, of of mothers as they give birth, and or in terms of their reproductive options. And in fact, something like 47,000 women are dying each year options. from unsafe abortions. So if they're going to have abortions anyway, should they not be safe abortions? Should that not no, be part of you, their health? You're just being cre- health? by making that available, you'll just be increasing the killing of these children. Why Increasing the killing why, of, of why the unborn children, it, is that what you're referring to? We need, we, what, what these, uh, the, the, the idea that we can impose a Western concept of these are women the family in developing countries choosing abortion for themselves. Nobody's imposing it on them, and they're dying why should because Canadian the abortions are unsafe. Why pay for women in other if, parts of the world if, well, to have abortions? Gonna, well, this is John's first question. Should we be funding this at all? If we're going to be funding health care for mums and children, then if these women, if these mums are choosing to 
undergo abortions, should they well, not be done in a safe environment? I That's don't, the question. I, I don't think that it's the obligation or responsibility of Canadian taxpayers, period, to be funding reproductive health in other parts of the world. It's certainly not a moral obligation. Now, there are plenty of organizations and charities... reproductive health is part and parcel of maternal health. Reproductive health is a euphemism. It's a euphemism for promotion of abortion with the United Nations. You know this, Justin. And why Canadian tax dollars should go towards that, I don't know. There are plenty of organizations that are, that are not governmental, that are working with women and children, orphans, families in Do those parts of the world. Do you support the maternal and child health initiative, the $3.5 billion, was it, and, that's and being invested? Primarily, yeah, it's for immunization and vaccinations to prevent early childhood illness and nutrition. Yeah, I think there's a pl- absolutely a place for... Uh, uh, Canadian tax dollars, if, if Canadians want to spend tax dollars on helping with immunizations in other parts of the world against childhood diseases, yes, I would be supportive And I'm with that. you on that, but part of the whole goal of these, with, with, these, with these projects is to save lives. And one way to save lives is where women opt for abortion. They're not being forced into this, they're not being coerced into this, where they voluntarily opt... Their yeah. lives are saved by making sure it's done in a safe environment. Yes, by, but, but you're talking about some sort of um, uh, utilitarian argument of, of uh, moral arithmetic about whether it's better to save this life here because she's wanting to kill a child here. The point is is that we have a moral obligation not to fund the killing of but children. But your arithmetic considers the, the, the death of, a, of an embryo to be equivalent to the death of a mother. Not, look, is that, Justin, is that what you, you claim to be on? somebody who's concerned with science. The science is in that it's a human life. The most radical right. advocates of abortion recognize it's a human life it's not right, so you're with Stephen Harper tissue. though Joe just so I cut to the chase when he says you know uh, we're not going to go into areas that are divisive and uh, therefore it's only for immunization vaccinations some people say uh, he didn't go far enough to Justin's point and uh, you feel perhaps disappointed that he hasn't earmarked the monies for that but uh so it is what it is, and uh, still with the United Nations, I'll ask this as an exit question because I think it's equally incendiary. Uh, the UN's anti-torture watchdog has ordered the Vatican to hand over files containing details of clerical sexual abuse uh, to police forces all around the world amid concerns that they're using the diplomatic immunity card. Do you think the Vatican should have to hand over these documents that they have on priests? That have, you know, have, uh... Absolutely they should. The, the, this is a problem within Roman doctrine. There is a the confusion of the jurisdiction there and responsibility of the civil magistrate and the church authorities, and it's the problem with the city-state concept. They are, they are obligated to hand over criminal investigate people being criminally investigated for crimes and Absolutely. they should but be we can, we can agree on at least that last point i mean for whatever reason they are considered a, you know a nation a, a, more or less at, at the level of the united nations and they can't have it both ways all right well we're going to see where that goes are you uh, confident that they will hand this over they'll stonewall and this is still going to be a long time in being resolved well, i think this is probably going to be dragged out it's a it's a thorny issue i think there are some genuine efforts being made i think pope francis is taking this issue seriously but you're dealing with a whole culture i think an historic culture of covering up yeah. these kinds of abuses and scandals It's not going to die quickly or easily it's just right. a, it's just another way to cover it up and i think you know pope francis has shown himself to be a charismatic and a smooth talker, and that's great for multi-faith dialogue, but here we need actual action and reform. Going back to our armchair theologian investor who phoned earlier, this is where you need to appeal to scripture, which they're just weights and measures, but also justice with respect to people and criminality. This is very important. That's why we do appeal to scripture. I appreciate it all. Uh, Justin Trache, spokesperson for the Canadian Secular Alliance. The Reverend Joe Boot, senior pastor at the Westminster Chapel in Toronto. Thank you both. 
Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.